you to sing after that. Let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. The children can be dismissed to Children's Church. Kindergarten through second grade can go to Children's Church. Or the rest of you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1027. Luke chapter 10, page 1027. Today we're continuing our study in Luke. Continuing our study of uh, the ministry of the 72. And we're looking at some different dimensions of Christian ministry. And last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at uh, when Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest field. We saw the need to continue to pray for God's ministry. And isn't it encouraging to hear uh, people like Jim, you know, God is continuing to raise up workers uh, for His harvest field in so many different ways. Well, today uh, we come to a new text. And today's text sort of focuses on the nature of success in the Christian ministry. What does it mean for a church to be successful? Let me just read our text, uh, verses 17 to 20. It says, The seventy-two returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in Your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what does it mean for a church to be successful? How do you know if a church has been successful? What are the uh, metrics for assessing the prosperity of a church. How do you know if a Christian ministry is thriving or not? You know, this last summer, uh, some remember I went on sabbatical. It was actually about this time last year I went on my uh, summer sabbatical. And one of the things I did was every weekend I visited a different church around everywhere around the country. I went and heard preachers who I always wanted to hear preach. And I went to churches that I'd always read about just to kind of broaden my horizons in addition to other things I was doing in my sabbatical. And uh, I remember one church I went to. It was one of these mega churches. It was mega. You know, you go in the sanctuary and it's huge. And there are huge like movie screen size screens on the walls. And uh, this thing was high tech. I mean, the, you know, the special effects lighting that they had during worship. The camera work. They had video clips on the screens playing. They even had, um, during the sermon, the pastor had a laptop. And he was doing real-time internet stuff as illustrations that was appearing, you know, I mean, it was, re- I was amazed when South Shore Baptist got dimmer switches for the lights in here. 
I thought that was like Star Trek. So when I went to this church, you know, this was way beyond me. Well, anyway, after the, after the service, I was uh, sort of milling around and I happened to bump into a guy who was, um, you know, on staff at the church and we sort of fell into a conversation. Oh, what's your name? Yeah, where are you from? Massachusetts. What do you do there? Actually, I pastor a church in Massachusetts. Oh, you pastor a church in Massachusetts. Do you know what the next question was out of his lips? How big is your church? <clears throat> you know, that irritated me. I mean, the, you know, the ornery side of me, which is a pretty significant part of my psyche, um, you know, wanted to say, I don't know, 10 million people. <laughs> yeah, our, 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 actually, our building is a whole county. It's huge. It's, uh, you know, but, you know, I said, ah, you know, a couple hundred people, whatever. He said, oh, that's great, that's great. Yeah, we have 8,000 here. And he said, and probably by next year, we'll probably have 9,000. And then he went on to lament the fact that there were very few other larger churches that he could really learn things from. He said, you know, there's not many more churches that can teach us anything. And we've talked to the ones that are bigger than us. And it's like, wow, that's, that must be rough, you know, um, to be in that predicament. Uh, and, and then he said, hey, you want to see something cool? I was like, well, yeah, you know, I'm always up for cool. I'm, I'm all about cool. You know, what, what is it? And, uh, and he said, well, come here. And he got his keys out and opened up this little room. And, and inside was the media room where they control all of the media effects that are used in the worship services. And, I mean, if I didn't know I was in a church, I would have thought I was in the place where they launched the nuclear missiles from. <laughs> it was like TV screens and computer and guys with, you know, walking around and talking to each other. I mean, it was really amazing the, the level of organization they had. And So, you know, I mean, is that a successful church? How do you know? Maybe it is. How do you know? What, what is success? What is it that makes ministry prosperous? How do you define it? And so we come to this passage in Luke chapter 10, and I think Jesus is addressing the issue of what it is that should excite us in the ministry. What it is that should make us stoked about a church or uh, something that God is doing. Why should we be fired up? Should it be size? Should it be technology? Should it be something else? Are those things wrong? Are they, could they be right or wrong? Well, I don't know. Let's look at what Christ has to say. Because here we have the, the 72 disciples returning, and they're talking about their ministry, and Jesus is evaluating it with them. So if you look at verse 17, it says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, if you're just sort of tuning in, um, and this is your first Sunday here, last Sunday we saw that Jesus sent out 72 disciples to preach. Uh, just like he had sent out the 12 apostles, he's now uh, increasing his ministry sixfold, and now he's taking 72 other disciples, and he's sending them out to preach. They're preaching the gospel, they are telling people about Christ, Jesus has even given them supernatural power to heal the way he healed, they're driving out demons. And so now they've gone out, and we don't really have a record of their ministry, but we see when they come back. Now they're all gathering together. It must have been like, hey, we're going to all meet at a certain day, you know, try to get to this place. I mean, who knows? But they somehow they get together. And these guys are they're excited. They're celebrating. They're rejoicing. Look, they returned with joy. Lord, even the demons. I mean, we were preaching the gospel, and people were listening. We healed people, and even the demons would submit to us. This was amazing what happened. And so they're rejoicing in their ministry and the success of it. And notice Jesus' response. Let me just read it and then we'll break it down. Verses 18 to 20. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. 
However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So in Jesus' response, I think he's doing two things. I think there are two uh, general sort of reactions Jesus has to their joy in the success of ministry. And the first reaction in verses 18 and 19 to summarize would be that he affirms their spiritual success. He acknowledges and says, yes, God has done something great here. So the first thing is there's, there's an affirmation, there's a positive, the first thing he does. Notice he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which is kind of an interesting statement. I mean, what is Jesus talking about there? You know, when did he see Satan fall? What does that mean? And as you think about it, there's kind of three general interpretive options you can make. One option would be that Jesus is talking about something that took place in the past. Uh, some people have said it's like when, before God created the world, Satan rebelled against God and God threw him down out of heaven. And Jesus is saying, I saw that took place. Which is, you know, of course possible, but I would say probably unlikely, given that there's nothing else in the context of the story that hints at that. Another interpretation would be that it's something in the present, like perhaps as the disciples are casting out demons, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall. And the third interpretive option then, of course, would be something in the future, that it's when maybe Jesus is raised, or maybe the last judgment day, then Satan is going to be cast down finally and certainly forever. So, you know, which one is it? How do you know? And, and the answer, of course, is how do you interpret the Bible? You have to look at the context. You have to look at what the verse says in the context of the verses around it. That's how you keep from just making weird interpretations of the Bible. And as we look at the context, we see that there's a little bit of the future and a little bit of the present. So if you look back up at, um, say, verse 15, um, you remember in verse 15, if you are here last Sunday, Jesus was pronouncing judgments on the cities that, by and large, had rejected him. Because they rejected Christ, they will not stand at the judgment day. Look at verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. So, so already we have this image of being cast down as associated with the final judgment. So I think certainly when Jesus says, I saw Satan cast down, there's some kind of uh, maybe prophetic vision he's having of the final overthrow of Satan. But it's also something that's taking place in the present. Uh, look at verse 17. The 72 returned and said, Lord, the demons submit to us. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall. So there's something, I think, given those, the proximity of those two verses, most likely there's something taking place now. So what I think it is, is that Jesus is prophesying the final overthrow of Satan, which is already being precipitated. It's already, there's a harbinger of it now in the casting out of the demons. That through the ministry of the gospel, the final overthrow of evil is being foreshadowed. And it's taking place. So there's an already dimension to it, but also a not yet dimension to it. And it's kind of all taking place like that. And they're sort of blending together. Um, so I, I think what's interesting about this is that Jesus is framing his ministry in terms of warfare. You know, one way to ask, what did Jesus come to do? And you can explain that different ways, but one way that the Bible gives us, one metaphor that the Bible gives us for understanding the ministry of Jesus is kind of like an invasion, like D-Day or something. <laughs> you know, when Jesus came into this world, he was coming to overthrow the kingdom of Satan and to bring the kingdom of God to bear against the darkness. So, you know, when you think about the uh, Christmas story, Little Jesus in the manger, so tender, you know, silent night. Oh, it's such a sweet thing. We all hold candles. And, you know, that's one way to think of the Christmas story. The other way to think of it is D-Day. 
with the bombs going off and Jesus making a hostile invasion into enemy territory to take back the universe for the kingdom of God. And so there's this, also this warfare metaphor that's taking place. And so there's lots of metaphors to describe Christ's work. And this is one of them. He's overthrowing the kingdom of darkness. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, that through his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Or in 1 John, uh, it says this is why the Son of God appeared, that he might destroy the devil's work. So here's Satan, uh, here's Jesus making a frontal assault against the kingdom of darkness. And, and what's interesting, what's, what's encouraging is that as the disciples participate in this ministry with Christ, they become his soldiers. They too are pushing back against the darkness. And so in a sense, I think that we have a way to define success in ministry. What does it mean to be successful in ministry? One way, certainly not the only way, but one way we could define it would be to see it as any time Christ is exalted and his kingdom is exalted and as a consequence, evil and sin and darkness are pushed back. Anytime that's taking place, there is success. That's when the kingdom of God is surging ahead. Uh, so anytime a church exalts Jesus, when a church focuses its hearts and minds on Christ and we lift up His name and, and we love Him so much that it causes us to worship Him in a sincere way. And when a church loves and exalts Christ so much that it causes us to love each other sincerely as a body. And you know, not the superficial, hi, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine, how are you? Fine. And then you know, we go over here and, do you see so-and-so? you see what she's wearing? I mean, do you see her? You know what she did to me? You know, you know that's not honoring Christ. It's when we really love each other. And you know, if we do have problems, which is inevitable in a family, we talk about it directly with each other. That's when you see the kingdom of darkness falling before our feet. Uh, the kingdom of Christ and success happens when we love Christ so much that we have a real concern and compassion for people who don't know Jesus. And it burdens us to pray and to reach out and even to think about missionaries going to the ends of the earth. When we love Christ so much that we hate sin and we want to see sin defeated in our life. You see, the advance of the kingdom of God is not only an outward thing, it's also an inward thing. In fact, I think that's where the battle is the fiercest sometimes. To see darkness and evil thrown down in my own soul. The kingdom is advancing inward as well as outward. And so, when these things are happening, that's when there's success. So, you know, is an 8,000-person church a successful church? And I think the answer is, well, it depends. It depends. It could be or it might not be. I guess it depends on why are the people there. You know, if the people are there because they're being drawn to Christ, if the people are there because God's Word is being opened and, and they're being drawn to God's Word and the Gospel is being proclaimed, and that's a successful church. And I love 8,000-person churches that are centered on Christ. Praise the Lord that He's doing that kind of work in a certain place. Um, but if people are coming to a church, whatever its size, because of, I don't know, entertainment or theotainment, whatever you want to call it, um, because it makes them feel good, but as they're there, they never hear the Gospel, they never hear the Word of God, then I would say, boy, that's... I don't know if that's a success. That may be a setback. Maybe the kingdom of darkness has invaded and co-opted the agenda of that church. So, success is when Christ is exalted and His kingdom moves forward. And you know, this is about more than just the church. I mean, we've been talking about ministry, but I think this applies to all of life. How do you know if you've been a successful businessman or businesswoman? How do you know if you've had a successful career uh, in whatever field you're in? And I think the answer is, again, has Christ been exalted 
in your life and through your business. Uh, and not just in terms of, did I get to share the gospel with the guy who works next to me? But you know, even more broadly thinking, how do you bring Christ's kingdom to bear on the culture of your business? You know, every business has a culture. How do you do that? Uh, without overtly standing up and saying, we will be a Christian business. I mean, you probably can't do that in your job. So what does it look like to bring the values of the kingdom into the system wherever you have an opportunity to? I mean, I think that's interesting. I don't think there's been a lot of necessarily thinking about that. It might be interesting to get a bunch of people in business together and to say, what, is it, what would it look like to see Christ influence the culture of a business? And I think that's success. When the way I relate to others in my business, even the guy down in the mailroom, do I know his name, A? <laughs> B, do I care? You know, and, and do I show the values of Christ by seeing everyone as made in the image of God and therefore in need of the gospel and love of Christ? Or do I uh, you know, fall into the corporate ladder and you know, I can't talk to you because you're way down there and I'm this and you're that? You know? And so I think that's success. It's wherever Christ is exalted, his kingdom is advanced, and the, the darkness recedes. And there you'll see the kingdom of God. And that can happen in a church of 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 or 10,000. It's really not about numbers. It's more about the quality of what's taking place. I heard uh, John MacArthur speak a couple weeks ago. I was at a pastor's conference, and he said something very wise. Uh, you know, surprise, surprise coming from him. But uh, he, he, said, um, he said, you know, when I first started out in ministry, I decided, I told the Lord, I would focus on the depth of the ministry, and I would leave the breadth to him. I would focus on proclaiming the Word of God and loving the people and having quality and focusing on what counts. And I would leave the numbers and size up to God. Now, boy, that's really wise. That should be... In other words, faithfulness is more important than numbers. And numbers are exciting only to the extent that they reflect God's blessing on faithfulness. And that's when numbers become really cool. It's when the, the faithfulness and the depth is there. So we need to celebrate success like that. And that certainly is successful. And Jesus affirms it. He says, yeah, boy, Satan fell from heaven. I've given you guys authority. You are my co-workers in this battle. You can trample on snakes and scorpions, which are just metaphors here for demonic forces. I mean, not literally you can handle snakes. I mean, you know, we don't handle snakes in our worship services, you know, and things like that. I mean, that's on Wednesday night. We actually do that. But... um So, it's, you know, we, we have authority over Satan. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid of the evil one. Does Satan tempt us sometimes and do we listen to him? Yes. But does he have authority over us to harm us spiritually? No. Do you understand that? You are protected from satanic power in Christ. If you stay in Christ and claim your authority in Christ, we have nothing to fear from Satan in that sense. And so, yeah, we are on the victory side. We are forcefully advancing with the kingdom of God in the spiritual realms. So Jesus affirms all that. Yes, that's success. It's great. Praise God for what you guys did. I saw Satan fall like lightning. But then look at verse 20. It's so fascinating. After affirming it, he then, in verse 20, relativizes it. So after saying, boy" in so many words, he now says, but of course, it's really not that big of a deal. In other words, he puts it in its proper perspective. So there's kind of a positive, but there's also, I don't know if negative, it's not that he disparages what they did, but he puts it in perspective. And he says in verse 20, However, do not rejoice that your the spirits, spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
<clears throat> so what does that mean, to have your names written in heaven? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, there's actually an image that runs throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It goes way back to the book of Deuteronomy. And it goes all the way through the Old Testament. It appears several times. It's in the New Testament. And it's this idea that God has a book. This is the image. It's His book. And in the book are the names of the people who truly belong to Him. You know, his people are written in the book. And so He knows. So it's the idea of sort of like a registry or a, a census. You know, you go to vote and they see if your name's in the book. Are you a citizen or not of the town? So that's the idea. It's, it's a registry of the citizens of heaven. And... Um, and so that's how you know who the people of God are. Those are the elect. Those are the saints. Those are the people who are really saved. Those are the people who are truly born again. Those are the ones who truly belong to Christ. Because, you know, here on earth, it's a little bit fuzzy. You never know. You know, somebody can talk the talk. Uh, somebody can come to church and know how to go through the motions. Somebody become very involved in a church, and yet maybe they don't really have a saving knowledge of Jesus. Um, somebody can say, oh yeah, I was a Christian, I became a Christian when I was this age. And then you say, well, have you walked with Christ for the next 30 years after that? Well, not really. Well, are you really a Christian? So, you know, it's fuzzy. We, we don't know. We can't see into people's souls. It's not our job necessarily to judge with finality where a person is with Christ. But it's not fuzzy in heaven. There's a book. God opens the book. And either in the book or you're not in the book. There's only one book and there's not you know, other books of people on a waiting list or something. You either belong to Christ or you don't, and He knows. And not only that, but um, the other thing about the book imagery in the Bible is not every time, but often when the book imagery appears, it's associated with the judgment day. So the idea is we stand before God on the judgment day and He opens the book and that's how He knows who stands in the judgment, who really belongs to Him or who doesn't. So it's kind of a it, you know, it's an unsettling image as well. It's an image of finality. Um, look at, let me just give you an example. Put a bookmark here in Luke 10. And I want you to turn back to Daniel chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 882. I just want to give you a couple, for instances, of this book imagery. Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 9. And what I want you to see here, this is what you're going to be looking for as we read this. This is a vision of the final judgment. I want you to see the association of God's judgment with the books. So if you look at verse, chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel says, <clears throat> page 882, Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, so he's having a vision, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river was flowing. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. It is now time to stand before the living God. Or look at Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Here again, a glimpse of that final moment when human history reaches its dramatic conclusion before the throne of God. Daniel chapter 12, it says, verse 1, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. 
There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people... And who are God's people? Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. So there's the resurrection at the coming of Christ. Some to everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's a judgment day. The book is open. If you're in the book, you have everlasting life. If you're in Christ, if we're not in the book, everlasting shame and contempt. So now go back to Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. That's great, yeah, successful ministry, wonderful. But you know what? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you will endure on the judgment day. In other words, I think what Jesus is comparing is the temporary with the eternal. He's saying, compared between those two, what is casting out a demon compared to your eternal destiny in either heaven or hell? How can you even compare those? One is like dust, the other is like Mount Everest. Except more, because it's infinite. Mount Everest is even too small of an image to compare. I mean, I, can, I don't know how to illustrate eternity. This is forever. You know, there's, there's now, which is so small and fleeting. You know, what is 75 years of life on earth now? What's 85 years? Maybe if you're really healthy, 95 years. What is that? Compared to forever and forever. And after a thousand ages, it's just started. You know, like that hymn we sing, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's trying to just get our minds around the idea of eternity. And to think that's what awaits us. And, and yet, you know, we're so consumed with the present. I'm so consumed with the present. We don't think about eternity very often. Uh, every once in a while, like when Jim was up here giving his testimony, maybe when someone dies, we, God, by His grace, helps us think about the eternal questions. But most of the time, I don't. I'm focused on how in the world I'm going to get my kids to their soccer game and, um, you know, what am I going to do about, you know, this mortgage payment and what about this... A disease I have or this you know surgery I'm facing or what about you know my my boat or my my vacation home you know we're just focused on the now and even when I do think about the future it's always the future in this life isn't it even when I do look down the road and do some advanced planning it's more about okay is this stock going to pay off in five years I got to really think about the future uh, or what about, you know, two years from now is going to be my 25th anniversary and I've always wanted to go to, you know, Greece and so I've got to start planning for it now. Uh, w- when we look into the future, we're thinking about 401k plans and we're thinking about saving for our children's college education. Uh, or, or maybe if we're looking really into the future, we're thinking about assisted living insurance policies because someday we may have to put someone in assisted living, one of our loved ones, and that way they'll have the care they need. You know, that's as far into the future as we look. But what happens when the final breath comes? What happens when God's anoint, appointed day for my death comes? Then eternity. And I don't think about that. We don't think about that. And Jesus is asking us to do that which is... So hard for us to do, not just because eternity is difficult to rationally conceive of, but because sin has given me tunnel vision. That's the bigger problem. And I don't, think, I don't want to think about the eternal realities. But if I stop for a moment and look down the timeline, 
And then I see what Jesus is saying. I should rejoice, not because of any success in this life. I should rejoice because when the judgment comes, I will be acquitted before God because of what Jesus has done for me. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That should give us joy. That should fire us up as a church. So we, you know, we should get up every day. If, if we could really keep everything in perspective, I should be getting up every day out of bed thinking, heaven is coming. Heaven is coming. And whether it's a year from now or 70 years from now is just so irrelevant compared to eternity. Heaven is coming. Heaven is coming. And it should be breaking into my present life and experience. You know, one thing we can do to help us rejoice more in our eternal destiny in Christ is to meditate on the opposite. To think about what happens if we're not in the book. Let that stir up your rejoicing in eternal life. Christ has already mentioned it in this chapter. He's talked about in verses 13 to 15, woe upon those peoples who have rejected Him. And there's another passage. I just We look back at Daniel. I want you to look forward to the end of the story. Look to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 20, which is one of the last chapters of the book of the Bible, almost the last chapter. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. And here's a picture of that final scene. Look at verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from His presence. In the presence of the glory of the Creator, the creation disintegrates. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. This is the resurrection. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And in verse 10, we have a chilling, terrifying image of the lake of fire. Look at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. It's just a different name, the same place. Where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God has given us a really horrific image of hell so that we would understand the consequences of being without Christ. And so he uses imagery that we get. And the imagery here is fire. And I was thinking about that image. I mean, I can't think of anything more terrifying than being burned. Has anyone here ever been burned? I mean, the pain from a burn is, you know, I think scientists say it's one of the worst possible pains a person can feel. I remember when our daughter was, I think she was like four or something, and, you know, a little kid, and we had a halogen lamp in the house. Uh, and it was very bright. It was sort of like a bed lamp. And we always say, you know, don't touch the lamp. It's very hot. And of course, you know, a little kid, that's impossible not to do. So, you know, one day she reached up and touched it. And just that little touch, and you know, ah! You know, she's flipping out, and you know, of course, a little blister formed on her little finger. And for the next several days, it was whimpering over the pain of that little burn. Because pain, burns are so painful. But that is just the after effects. I mean, think about the moment of burning. Imagine if you could be given a body 
that could feel pain and misery without dying and without being consumed. And you don't have to imagine because that is the bodies that the damned will receive. And imagine being placed in a furnace for 15 minutes. Imagine what that would be like. If you can, you know, let your imagination even go there. Imagine the misery. Imagine after one minute of the 15 had passed, the insane agony you would be in. And imagine the voice saying in, you have 14 minutes to go. It would seem like eternity to you. 14 more minutes of this? And imagine after the 15 minutes had passed and you were going mad with misery and torment, the voice said, okay, you actually have to go an hour. And so you endured another hour and your mind is coming unglued by the hopelessness and the pain, but you kept thinking, okay, at least an hour is about to be up. And that one thought keeps you going in the midst of horror. And then the voice says, okay, now you must go 24 hours. And imagine if at the end of the 24 hours, the voice said, now you must go a year. And after the year, a thousand years. But at least you could hope that after a thousand years, it would be over. But imagine if after a million years of torment, it was still just beginning. Forever and ever and ever. And your soul would sink down. Do you remember Dante's Inferno? What does it say over the gates of hell in Dante's Inferno? Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. The idea of hopelessness as the soul sinks deeper and deeper under the fury of a holy and just God. And this is the destiny that we deserve because our sin is infinite. Because we've sinned against an infinite God and therefore we deserve instant, infinite justice. And that is what God will do to all those who reject Him and break His laws and reject His beloved Son whom He sent. That is our eternal destiny without Christ. So rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that because God so loved the world, He sent His only Son. That whoever, you hear that? Whoever, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've done, whoever believes in Him will not perish in the full sense of that word, but will have everlasting life. Rejoice that that when we get there on that day, Instead of hearing a verdict of guilty, we will hear forgiven. Rejoice that on that day, instead of my mouth being filled with wailing and gnashing of teeth, my mouth will be filled with eternal hallelujahs and praises. Rejoice that on that day, instead of spending eternity under the just frown of a holy God, I will be in the presence of my Savior enjoying His blessings and His joy forever and ever, world without end. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know how I define success in the church? Ultimately, the church has one success. Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, raised, coming again. That's our only success, ultimately. That's the only thing we really have to brag about. That's the only thing we can really boast in. Christ is our success. And so we cling to Him knowing that in Him there is life. So rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would grant us the gift of 
discernment and insight so that we might be able to understand the eternal realities that lie before us. Lord, we need your help because otherwise we'll be stuck on the here and now. Help us often to think of our future. And Lord, to rejoice if we are in Christ. And if we are not in Christ, to do everything in our power to lay hold of him. Lord Jesus, I pray that the realities of heaven and hell would just be on our minds, that we would think of them, that we would see the fleetingness of this world. And so, Lord, be empowered to live for you in this world because we know that we are not of this world. Lord, bless this church with joy, the joy that comes from beholding our Savior and beholding the eternity that we have in him. Lord God, give us a great compassion for those outside of Christ, not an arrogant smugness, but a humble love that is eager to reach out to others. Because, Lord, we know we have been where others have been. And we are saved by your grace, not by our works. And so, Lord, use us as your heralds. Even as you use the 72, use us. The fields are white for the harvest here in the South Shore and in Boston. So, Lord, use us. Raise us up so that many might come to know Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to close uh, singing one hymn, hymn 151. It's a great hymn about God's salvation and protection over us, both now and forever. It's a mighty fortress is our God, hymn number 151. Would you stand and let's sing this great declaration of our confidence in Christ.
After the service, our prayer team is here. John and Cindy Norton, if you guys can come up here. They would love to pray with you after the service about anything going on in your life, big or small. Uh, come up and just ask them for prayer. This is a godly couple who love the Lord, and they would love to pray confidentially with you about anything you're concerned about. And uh, down in my office, um, we're going to have a testimony from the Camptons. And if there's too many of you, we'll just come right back up here in the sanctuary and do it. But they're going to share their testimony, and then there's going to be some more testimonies in the 11 o'clock service. So hope you come downstairs, hear a testimony, get some coffee, go to Sunday school, and enjoy this beautiful day that God's given us. And now, Heavenly Father, send your people out rejoicing. Send us out filled up with hope in eternal life. And let us, as Martin Luther said in this hymn, be willing to let our whole lives go in this world because we see that it's fleeting. And instead, to just be spent for you, joyfully giving ourselves to the work of the Gospel in our families and our friends and uh, all over the world around us. So use us this day as your ambassador. Send us out now, even as you sent out the 72. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.